0: Welcome to the Betterism Podcast, a learning community seeking out life’s unusual lessons from its unlikely places. I'm your host Glenn Binger, author, teacher, and coach, and I’m here to help spark some collective growth. I hope you'll stick around and teach us a thing or two, but first, a few words from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Loud Coffee Press. Loud Coffee Press is a lifestyle brand and a literary magazine for creatives of all kinds. Um, They accept poetry, flash fiction, short stories, and art submissions. Um, And they're always looking for new new artists to work with. They actually also just dropped an inspirational book made specifically for writers. It's called Creative Home. And I can't express how helpful it's been in my own writing process. Highly recommend you check that out. Um, And this is pretty cool. They're actually working on an RPG or a role-playing game called Eight Bells Bluff. They have a Kickstarter going, and they're trying to drop that for 2021. Super cool stuff. Um, so you can find them online. You can connect www.loudcoffeepress.com. All right. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Betterism Podcast. You know me. I'm your host, Glenn. Today, we have a special guest, a fellow teacher, Uh, David Paris. He's an author. He's a teacher, as I just mentioned, and he is a champion dancer and a COVID survivor. David, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I love the title of your podcast. I'm super excited to share my story, my experience with COVID, which um, I know a lot of people have COVID uh, fatigue, but this will be an uh, upbeat story about surviving and and becoming better and figuring out making the best of a situation. And thank you so much for having me.
0: Of course, man, you know, when we first linked up, uh, I knew we were going to hit it off too. to the, the whole teacher aspect. And then we kind of dove in a little more and realized we were both middle school teachers. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a good conversation.
1: <laughs> it's a special breed of per- Did you want to become a middle school teacher?
0: Um, in all honesty, when I first started my career in education, I wanted to be high school. Um, and then that slowly kind of transferred into like, oh, I want to be a college professor. And then when I got into the, the, the <laughs> wow. world and I was attaining my master's, I was like, um, you know, I'll try this middle school thing. And that's kind of just where I end up.
1: So is it a downgrade or is this something you're enjoying and saying, okay, this is where I'm meant to be?
0: Oh no, I enjoy it. I, you know, I think I belong somewhere in the realm of academia. Um, and I, you know, personally, my preference is not to go too young. I <laughs> There's like a age limit that I'm like, oh, all right. I don't know if I could do that young. And then you know, over the course of like my teaching career and and podcasting and stuff, there's also there's a cap to that too. I feel like at the top of the game, there's also like, ooh, people are ingrained at a certain age. You know, it's hard to kind of break them a little bit. You know, so I don't know. I I feel like I feel comfortable in middle school. How about you? Yeah,
1: me. I I actually started Teach for America thirty years ago, um, working in the South Bronx. They just put that's where they put me in middle school in sixth grade. And I fell in love with this age group. People will say, oh, my God, you're a middle school teacher. How can you do it? And that's because many people's middle school experience was bad. My Mm -hmm. middle school experience 40 years ago was one of the best times of my life. And because you still have the youth of the elementary school, the kids are still innocent to some degree, definitely Mm -hmm. looking to be shaped, looking to be mentored, um, but are old enough and sophisticated to have deep discussions about Issues of the world, and I think there's no better place age-wise um, to 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 be a teacher, with the exception of if you're a college professor, you don't have you probably don't have spitballs and and, and paper <laughs> flying. <laughs> you don't have to deal with classroom control, and that's a big plus. Although this yeah. remote learning is kind of. That's one nice thing is, is being able to press the mute button. You don't have that in the classroom. Do you have a class yeah. where you are at? Do you, I'm, I work in New York City for 27 years, so I'm definitely uh, management is a big, comes up quite a lot with middle school. Does that come up with you?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and if, I just want to, first of all, second, the, the comment you made on, about the age group. I think um, that age of, of human beings' existence and, and the human condition is, is very uh, palpable, and you can kind of like, you can kind of like help, help kids who you can, um, how can I put this? You can tell are kind of heading in the wrong direction and kind of like, you know, put them back on the right track without them going through this like existential crisis, you know, uh, it's kind of like, all right, this one little, like one little day, this one little comment I made kind of shifted them in the right direction. Yeah. You know?
1: It's a special thing to do. And it's funny, like a lot of, a lot of people witnessed in the beginning of teenage years as all oh, these kids are disconnecting. And it's true. They are, they're, evaluating themselves based on their peers for sure sure but they want us they want us they they may not show they want us <laughs> but they absolutely want the adult attention oh yeah. about love and the mentorship and
0: especially somebody who's like outside of you know their immediate parents guardians family they, they want they want somebody who's going to kind of be um an adult or a role model and again like you said like they won't ever express this but you can tell just from their mannerisms and gestures that like they're they're looking for a sense of real outside of the things they experience firsthand every single day of their life.
1: It was cool. I was taking this, uh, this workshop on um, dance therapy with kids with special needs, and the professor was saying, you know, the kids express anger, but they really might be experiencing depression, but they're not going to show sadness. They're not going to show vulnerability because yeah. for them, they show that they get destroyed by their classmates. And so mm-hmm. what you see is anger and defiance might just be depression.
0: Right. And, you know, this year, to go back to your point about classroom management, you know, this year, um, it's been very unique, to say the least, but um, you could tell uh, just a a couple months now into this, how, mm, how those emotions are kind of coming through, right? Like, whether it's uh, not completing assignments on time, or, you know, calling out and kind of unmuting themselves at inappropriate timeframes, or even just like, you know, leaving, like, (laughs) comments in the chat log i i I have kids now who are you know they found out that like i know what rickrolling is right so now they're trying to rickroll me in class in the middle of like my lesson and it's one of those things it's like all good fun and you know i don't want to like put a damper on it but at the same time i'm trying to teach them like when's the appropriate time to mess around you know so
1: this is the best time to teach okay this went wrong. What can we learn from this?
0: (laughs) Exactly. Yes. The, uh, the trial by failure, right? Like this, I I messed up. We messed up. How can we learn from this experience so we don't do it again? And I find that that age group is very susceptible to, uh, seeing it that way and and changing their mind frames to kind of think things through. Whereas like I've taught, like we were talking about before we started recording, I've, I've taught at the high school level and, not that there's anything wrong with that age, but it's a lot more difficult to get through on that on that train, right? To kind Absolutely. of say like, oh, we messed up. Like, how can we fix it? Because by then, you know, I mean, I try, I try to think back to like when I was a teenager, you know, being, you know, that, that act of rebellion against yeah. my parents and the school. And I get that, but it's, you know, that's part of life. That's part of part of growing up is like experiencing that, uh, that piece of your humanity, and then outgrowing it eventually, but the middle school, you kind of, you kind of miss that a little bit, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they they they're just started with this new way of being, and it's just a great opportunity. Uh, I I think like the coolest thing I, I've taught for a long time, coolest thing I ever did is I ran an acrobatic salsa dance team, and here I saw kids who were already disassociated with with school, not wanting to come. Suddenly they were doing stuff you see on Dancing with the Stars. And like uh, you know, assisted back walkovers and and and, and these fancy dips and, and shows. And suddenly they not only came to school, um, they actually were doing well because they wanted they couldn't perform unless they did well in school. And it's just an amazing thing to find. I don't know if that would have happened if they were in high school, but in middle school, they were st- they were a little distant, but still ready when when presented with the fun thing to do that engaged their body and their mind. They said, mm. OK, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board, you know.
0: Yeah. And again, that's that's the beauty of the age group that we're working with. It's that they still have that open mindedness. You know, when you get to be an adult, it's very easy to kind of close yourself off to certain aspects of life just because you kind of find your interests, you know, the things you kind of niche yourself into and not that there's anything wrong with that but it's a lot harder to unlearn something than it is to learn something and when you're at that age you know 11 12 13 years old you're you're still you're still learning things right it's those things aren't ingrained yet so it's easier to kind of uh shift your mind frames a little bit there
1: for sure can i throw a curveball here
0: <laughs> go for it yeah so i almost died
1: <laughs> i almost died i had COVID a year ago i was though. Sickest person on the COVID in the COVID in the COVID division of the hospital, which at that point in New York City was basically the entire hospital. I was in ECMO, was on a ventilator. I woke up after 30 days on on ECMO machine, and that's a ventilator plus. And I could tell you, I learned lessons finally at at 48 years old at the time, 49 now, that um, I wish I learned a long a long time ago. And it's an amazing thing. We're talking about middle school being a great time to learn. I'm gonna. I'm here to say you can learn at any time. I started learning, wow, I am way more significant. You know, being a middle school teacher, you sometimes forget how important you are. And because there's so much more to do, you feel like hmm, maybe I wasn't so successful this class or this year or something like this. Mm-hmm. And I woke up feeling that way. I was just like, oh, wow, um, what have I done with my life? And it was only when people reached out to me. At all different levels, people I said hello to in the hallway in, in school, or um, I helped somebody one day. Uh, kids were reached out for me that I realized, wow, we're we're way more significant than we realized. And I could say I learned that lesson at, at 48 that I never learned before. It's a hard lesson to learn, and I don't suggest people have a near-death experience to reach the depth of of, of that um, understanding. But mm. it's possible. It's possible. Just easier yeah. in middle school,
0: right? Of course. And and ultimately too, I know we were talking about this before we started recording too, but you know, that's, that's kind of my goal here with the podcast is to help people realize that like we, we all still possess that ability and like, yes, it's, it is more difficult, the older you get, but it doesn't go away. It's just, it's harder to shake the rust off. It's like anything else, right? Like I, I don't know if you've heard a couple of the episodes. Um, I grew up playing ice hockey, right? And I've been playing in like a, an adult league since college and there's you know that's the the late night no no checking it's kind of slow motion oh, wow. but <laughs> you know it's, it's, no it's my wonderful. <laughs> well it's a, you know it's my exercise and this past year since everything kind of shut down like I haven't been able to to do that ice hockey was one of the first things to go because it's indoor and you're like you know sitting right next to each other breathing on each other and stuff so you know I always compare this this to ice hockey because that's where my mind frame is but you know, you you shake the rust off. I, I have my first skate scheduled for, I want to say two weeks from now. And I know I'm going to be rusty as soon as I step on that ice. But I also know that I've, I have the skill and yeah, it's going to take a while to shake that rust off, but I will be able to go step on the ice and like skate. Yeah. I might fall four or five, 10 times, you know, before I get there, but it's still there. It's not like my brain just completely forgot it. Um, it's, it's tough because I, you know, I, don't, I also don't want to make it sound like it's easy because it's certainly not easy, but it's possible.
1: No doubt. I actually, in my own recovery, I am a acrobatic dance champion. I was a America's Got Talent finalist. Um, and the good news is with, when I was in the coma, I lost a whole lot of weight. Um, the bad news is I lost almost all muscle. So I couldn't even press a remote when I woke, woke up. I had to call the nurse. Oh my goodness. I want to change the channel Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, you want to change the channel when you're watching the same commercials uh, all night long. <laughs>
0: definitely, <laughs> definitely,
1: right? So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, one year later, I just started to do. I, it's an interesting experience because I've taught a lot of acrobatics to to both dancers and people who want to do an overhead lift for their wedding or something like this, and. I will teach them to use their legs and how long it takes usually it takes four or five months. Meanwhile, I'll hold somebody over my head for two or three minutes as I'm explaining to them what to do. Like I developed mm. incredible strength over decades of work. Um, all of a sudden, I can't lift anyone over my head again. And starting from the beginning, I'd say it was definitely one of the most most daunting um, elements of, of this recovery. But at the same time, it's interesting. It's like, okay, if I'm not who I used to be. I can't compare myself to who I used to be. All I can compare myself is who I was yesterday, who I am today, and who I'm going to be tomorrow. And it's an interesting process. So like when I hold somebody over my head, I now feel shoulder pain. I haven't felt that in 15 years, maybe even longer than that. Um, And I can feel the muscles working. And I can only do it for about a second or two. And I'm working on balance. And I can feel every single day I do it, I get a little better. So... When we're talking about lessons, like for me, my biggest lesson coming back from, from the almost dying, is to focus on the process, to um, not be so obsessed with the destination as my force of, of a source of happiness. But my source of happiness is what I'm doing and how I'm progressing at the time. And if I'm not progressing, I'm figuring out why and what I can do different.
0: Mm, yeah, those baby steps. It, you know, it's. Uh the habits, those daily, daily little tick marks, then they don't seem like a lot when you're in the moment, but you know, you look back over that course of time and, and you realize like those baby steps really helped progress. And it, it definitely, 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 definitely takes time, especially with something so complex as like, you know, muscular systems. But it's not to say that like not focusing on the pra- uh, the process won't help. You, you kind of have to think about it, you know, like, don't think so much about the big picture. I mean, of course, have a goal in mind, but, you know, focus more on those those day-to-day steps that will eventually become the big picture.
1: That for me and was I- huge. Like, it's interesting because I always wanted to go back to America's Got Talent. And this year, after I recovered, I said, you know what? I'm going back one more time. My dance partner who who said, eh, I don't know if I want to do that again, because it's actually way harder uh, than it appears on TV. And I believe uh, that. Yeah, it's really difficult. And when we did it, um, but she said, you know what, if you recover from COVID, we'll go on again. And having that goal was actually just gave me so much passion. And there is a lot of emotional, I'm sure you know that like people who have COVID often have some anxiety and have a whole bunch of brain fog that I'm definitely having a whole bunch of that. And The thing that clears the fog for me the most is being passionate about the goal. So I get having that goal and saying, I need something to pull me forward, not just uh, releasing what's behind me. And for me, that goal is America's Got Talent again. And for the last month, I trained harder than I ever did for the last year with that goal in mind. I called the producer up and said, okay, I'm ready. I got, I got my partner over my head. We're ready, ready to do something cool. Um, and he said, well, we just closed our auditions for this year. But next year, you're, you'll are you be first. In line. <laughs> I know, right? And right. In that moment, I tell you, man, it was such an interesting experience. I was so deflated. I, I started rehearsing with my partner again. And I was thinking, why am I doing this? There's no purpose behind it. And in that rehearsal, I experienced a spiritual change where I didn't do the acrobatic to achieve something. I did it because I enjoyed doing it. And normally, maybe that's 5% mm. of my motivation. But in this one rehearsal, it was 99, if not 100% of it, because there was nothing else to do it for. And my you know, my partner said, you know, hey, look, uh, we can do it again. They probably have dozens of people with COVID stories uh, that are coming on this season. Maybe they didn't need us or something like this. And And she said, look, we can go on another show. It's not the only one. And that disappointment, the release of it, finding a new goal, and then instead enjoying the moment was crucial for me. In, in stepping up and that just happened last week it was interesting
0: oh wow yeah all right so so paint paint me a time frame here when was the the first time you were on
1: yeah i was on 12 years ago i believe 2009 but the story i love to tell <laughs> is that i was actually on season two or i tried out for season two jacob jaffet center ten thousand people i we were first did our audition for the associate associate producer and we nailed the routine and the person said we'll call you back three months later they never called us back <laughs> and of course them, like, no. <laughs> and i called them every day and i was just like when are you gonna call us um and then i it took me 90 days and then i gave up um we tried again basically the same exact routine in the fourth season, and for whatever reason, we made it all the way to the semifinals and made it through four rounds uh, all throughout different levels of the producers and did really, really well. It it, it launched our career performing around the world and um, really, really, for the most part, a great experience. And um, about that, yeah, Um, TV show in front of, um, we were right, and we didn't know at the time that there were buzzers. We just thought it was a talent show. And not only are there buzzers, there are thousands of people booing people. And we could hear it underneath. We were like waiting in the stage area underneath, like, wow. Oh, man. Yeah, we're like, <laughs> and my partner, Zoe, she's looking at me like, what did you get me into? And I was just <laughs> like, oh, boy. Fortunately, our producer, you know, beautiful, beautiful man, he said, look, here's the deal you got to get the audience on your side. Um, Put out your best, don't wait for the end. Put out your best trick in the beginning, which is never what you do as a circus act. As a circus act, we do acrobatic dancing. It's it's a circus type of uh, performance. You usually do your second best trick first, you fill it in and then you end with your best trick. He said, no, start with your best trick. I said, all right, we we trusted him. We did a trick where my partner's under pound at the time I was 240. She lifts me over her back, you know, off the ground crowd goes crazy 10 seconds into the routine gives us a standing ovation that moment i knew i was like all right we did it um and if you ever want to check it out you can look on youtube Dance, p-a-r-a-d-i-z-o dance.com you'll see you'll see my smile at the end of the you know throughout the rest of the routine. like all right we nailed this this is great (laughs) and uh yeah it's one of the best experiences you know my mother's in the audience she could barely move she had like two um Busted hips and a busted knee she ran down the aisle saying that's my son that's my son <laughs> you had to like tackle her on the way out you know and, uh, it was it was great and, and a good 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 moment in our lives
0: um I did not know I did not know you that you um uh, auditioned prior to that I thought that was your first go-round so that's interesting you kind of had like the little like that learning epiphany within there at the same time
1: <laughs> yeah. how long
0: how long have you been dancing?
1: I've been dancing since 22. I started, um, I started taking dance classes. I was in Guatemala learning Spanish because my a lot of my kids' parents only spoke Spanish. And when I was learning Spanish out there, I, I went to a club one night and I saw this really, really ugly guy dancing with all these beautiful women. And I thought to myself, OK, I need to learn how to dance. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know, right? So I went back to New York and the best teachers and for, for Salsa is in uh, Salsa was the dance I saw him do. And I was like, "All right, I got to learn how to do this. And um, started taking classes with Eddie Torres, took classes five, six nights a week for like four or five years. Still wasn't very good, um, but determined. And I can't tell you how many people rolled their eyes when I asked them to dance. I'm going to tell you, I was determined because I I knew I looked terrible. but I just love the music. I love dancing with women. And and, um, I didn't give up. But what was a change is I switched to another school. They allowed me to join their student team. And one day they did lifts. Now, lift, dancing, moving. I'm a white guy. Not so good at moving my hips. Definitely not my body. Uh, but I am good at moving people. And when he taught me some uh, the ability to like throw someone in the air, that I did uh, instinctually. And he says, mm. okay, uh, I'm going to mentor you. You are going to be the designated lift guy. We're going to have all the salsa dancers do the two, three minutes of looking good. You'll come on stage. You'll lift my wife because we're fighting too much. And I'd much rather <laughs> you do it yeah. than me. <laughs> True story. And uh, and and I made a career out of this. And I thought to myself after a year or two of doing this, I was like, you know, maybe I should give up the salsa dancing thing and just do the acrobatics so when I met zoe um Zoe's a circus artist we we combined all the acrobatics so sometimes she would never even touch the floor in a whole four or five minute routine, so that the acrobatics became a dance itself and we call it acrobatic dance it's called cabaret and part of do by other people um and it it's a very entertaining, very entertaining and at the time was um totally new now a bunch of people do it and it's one of the big biggest passions of my life in fact actually when i was in a coma i was dancing All the time in my dreams. Now, I know that you might say, oh, were you dreaming? I was definitely, definitely dreaming. And why was I dreaming of dancing? Because my dance partner had the wherewithal to have the nurses play 24-7 salsa music and all our performances. So I'm telling you, while my body was fighting for its life, my mind was having a blast as it was. (laughs) traveling around the world and best circumstances. And when I woke up, I was like, Oh, I'm back into this world. And it was, it was, it was an interesting shift.
0: That is interesting. To me, it also aligns with your, that epiphany of like passion and purpose. Right. And like, not, not necessarily putting all the eggs in the purpose basket, but then also, you know, realizing that like, there is the enjoyment factor. There's, there's the, there's the passion piece of this too. And that's why, I still want to continue. That's why I still want to keep going with this, even though, you know, I realize it's not gonna, you know, bring me to the top of the charts. There's still a reason to do it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's beautiful. Like, right, like, and if anything, if not, if if, if playing ice hockey without the checks, maybe that's like the best way to do it, right? (laughs) You know,
0: (laughs) I well, so there's a saying, right? And you know, in the hockey community, it's all roads lead to a men's league. It's because no matter what level you play at at your peak, you always end up in a beer league somewhere, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <That> <laughs> so, it's, <was> cool. <laughs> and it's funny, of course there's, you know, there's skills. You can always tell when, uh, when you're playing a team and, you know, one guy's on the other team skating circles around everyone on your team. It's like, all right, that guy was in the pros, <laughs> you know, yeah. but you know, it's one of those things. It's like you, you're, you do it. Cause you love it. You know, yeah. there's, there's, there's no other reason. I mean, yeah, there's the side benefits of like with ice hockey, like, and, and, and dance, you know, that's the exercise piece, but that's not like the purpose behind it. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I love doing it. And the exercise like, yeah, that comes with it. That's, that's a bonus. You know, I do. I think like
1: this pandemic, I'm not the only one. I think you're talking about it. We're all connecting more to what we love. Right. Yeah. um, Without that, you know, purpose, purpose has been, taken out of our lives for the most part, uh, whether we have a job or not have a job, either way, um, it's not the same. And we have to find what we really do enjoy. For me, it was dance. For you, I'm sure there are many things. One of them is is ice hockey. For me, I'm also a, I wrote, love, 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 writing adolescent adolescent fiction, young adult fiction for kids who are reluctant readers. And almost all the kids I, I teach as an English teacher are reluctant readers. So. Um, i i find that you know your middle school teacher there are lots of there's lots of literature directed towards kids or or that age group not a lot of it's good and even less of it's funny like you know Mm. you have holes which is an amazing book and um you know phantom Tollbooth is another favorite of mine um and i love teaching some of the classics like lord of flies but i do know that like there, there need to be things that are funnier. So, uh, so far I've written three coming out with a fourth adolescent book. That for me is a passion. And I know that when I sit, I'm not worried about the rest of the world as I'm just sitting doing my passion. And I do it differently now because I can come from a place of, this is what I want to do. Not because I should do, not because I want to become a best-selling author, which I'm definitely not, (laughs) not yet. We'll see. But, um, yeah, finding your passion doing it now in this time
0: of pandemic. I think it's a lesson
1: all of us have learned, right?
0: Absolutely. And you know, a lot of times the people will kind of mistake that for the success. And um and what I mean by that is like they'll they'll mistake the uh the process for the success when really the person like You know yourself, myself, like making that art and then like finishing the product and putting it out there, regardless of its reception. That is the successful piece because that's like, you know, that that piece where you you turn around and you say like, I did this, I made this thing, and some people like it, some people don't, but I did it, and I know that was an accomplishment for me. Um, I personally like, and the the reason that I wanted to get you on the show, um, I like how you you tied together your love for writing with your teaching career so like you the the students you predominantly work with who are reluctant readers it's almost as if your your target audience is them right you're trying to help them gather that that love of reading through content that is a little more approachable than something like lord of the flies which don't get me wrong great book but You know, probably not the first one I'm going to throw at my middle schooler, you know,
1: that's the end of the year (laughs) when when you gain trust that when you gain their trust. Right.
0: Right. Exactly. You know, and there's been there's definitely been (laughs) plenty of moments this year. You know, my school, we have I'm teaching in person. So I have kids in front of me and I'm also teaching Zoom at the same time. So I have digital kids, virtual kids and I have in person kids. And there's definitely been moments where I'm like, all right, uh, you know, in-person kids, I'm going to leave the room and, you know, you guys are going to do a little Lord of the Flies for a minute and then I'll, I'm going to go work (laughs) with the virtual kids and come back, you know, just uh, please don't kill each other, you know, (laughs) like one of those. And
1: and that's like the amazing thing. Those students who read Lord of the Flies will now know every time somebody gives a reference, they go, oh yeah, that's what, I've had kids do that. I I do Lord of the Flies every year and I have kids uh, in the future when they graduate come back and tell me, "Oh yeah, now I hear it all the time in pop culture. I, I never knew what that meant before."
0: Yep, it's yeah. it's um, I don't know. It's to me that that cultivation of a reading habit is so much more important than the, you know, nailing down the classics. So all kids yes. experience, you know, the giver at one point in their life. Like, I, I love the giver, but is, is that is that what's going to get the kid in love with reading? Most no. likely not. It's like you yeah. ha, you have to give them something they're interested in. You know, I, I try to make it a point in my class. Like, yes, there's things that I, I have to assign you to read. But as far as my grades go, like you get credit for just bringing in a book and reading. Like it's, sometimes you finish an assignment early while everyone else is still working take out your book. Okay. You brought a book today and you like this book. Here you go. Here's, here's 10 points on your grade. You know, little things like that. It's,
1: it's
0: it's kind of, I mean, I try to gear it as like a positive reward, you know, but I really don't, I try not to focus on the grade because that's not even, to me, that's not even the important piece. The important piece is that, that habit of having reading material that you actually want to read. You know, you want to read about video games, go for it. You want to read about, sports
1: go for it right yeah yeah. and it's our job as english teachers to get that material in front of them i was super interested in the books that i wrote if you ever uh, get a chance in the audience uh, if you look on youtube for laughable legends or david paris books um you can see there i put some animation and some read-alouds from from the book first book laughable legends and in it there's lots of good stories that are both fun for kids that are interesting to read, but then also have deeper life lessons. For example, um, I wrote a book about two liars, and it was a liar uh, as a kid and a teacher who both were having a contest, who could lie the most. And they eventually were becoming a, um, they, the teacher eventually had a tutor to the kid, and they lied for each other. And this was actually expressing what happened with Enron and also expressing what happened in the 2009 crisis when mm-hmm. the auditors had to um, audit these big companies and then weren't reporting what was really happening. And so I love that story as a real life example, both the kids get it, but then as an adult, when you read it with the kids, you think ah, this is actually talking about something bigger in the world.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was gonna, so I was gonna ask about that since you brought it up. I noticed, you know, you, especially with the, the animated things you have on YouTube, that you tie in, um, like those real world examples, but you frame it in a way that's meant for like adolescent readers. Right. right. So, yeah, totally. so how, where do you, I mean, how, how do you collect those kinds of ideas and, and materials? Like where, where does that come from and, yeah, and yeah. how do you then put it on the page? It's hard. <laughs> it's really hard.
1: Um, I had thousands of ideas and only a few of them, manifest the stories and my i in general i try to make the stories three to five pages really short and again my own attention span is not so great and definitely for my students really short stories that are funny um every i don't want to go a paragraph without a kid laughing in some way and so that that's that's the way i try to write those stories Mm -hmm. um it started out it's actually a i teach social emotional learning now um i moved on from teaching english and one year we did a New Year's resolution, and I said I'm going to write a book. And I was just noticing that every every time I told the story, the kids loved it. And I thought, all right, let me see what I can do, um, model to kids how to uh, pursue your goals. And that's how I got started. Um, didn't put together the first story about a real life real life situation where a kid was bullying everybody else. No matter what I could do, I couldn't stop the bullying in the class. Until one day, he had a pimple on his nose, and that pimple every day grew, and the bully, the kid who was bullying, then became bullied by the others. And the story about the pimple is a little bit about karma, but more about like how things can shift and leads to kids talking about um, what it means to be a bully, what it means to bully other people, why we do it. Mm -hmm. And every story has that element, some sort of, you know, the hook there is bullying, the hook there is a pimple, which Um, I think everybody cares about, but especially middle school. And um, and for some, and they're edgy. All the stories are edgy. None of them are clear, moralistic. This is what you should do. They're all kind of, um, they're edgy and they they make you think, all right, what what do I think about the situation? The first story I wrote was one of my, about one of my favorite students in the world who did, I think it was. I, I used to give a lot of detention. And this one kid, I mean, over the course of the year, I think he did 36 hours. If I remember, correctly. he like totally won the, yeah, in general, I would give like two hour detentions to the beginning of the year. And then I wouldn't have behavior problems uh, after September. That usually worked except for him. <laughs> this one student, no matter what, he just kept getting two hours. And I couldn't not do it because I try to hold other kids to standard. My argument right. was, Well, okay, it's not going to affect this kid, but it'll scare other kids from, you know, maybe doing something inappropriate. And, um, you know, he, he came to me, I think it was like seven or eight years later when he was in college. And I asked him, I said, you know, why, why did you get all that detention? He said, Mr. Paris, I love you, man. I always wanted to hang out with you. (laughs) I have no place better to go, you know? It was a reward. Yeah. reward. I wrote a story about him called, um, the boy who repeated eighth grade, you know, three times, uh, and he was a kid who didn't want to leave middle school. And it makes jokes about things he did, like uh, shooting a water pistol at the ceiling to make sure that the um, to, to pretend that the, the ceiling was leaking. And he's always doing something um, to get in trouble. And the truth was, he actually just wanted to stay in school and get held over again because he didn't want to move on. And he felt scared, mm. which kind of ties into kids. You know, eighth graders, they really are scared about going to high school. and by that Oh, time, yeah. Some, some of them want to go, but a lot of them are like, wow, I just had a good time. I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready for this. So it kind of ties in a conversation about that. It ties in a conversation about uh, motivation um, and why kids will do the things that they do. And it does it in a, in a fun way. That's entertaining.
0: Right. And you know, stories like that that don't have that definitive answer, right? Those lead to the best kinds of discussions because you, you have so many different angles and so many different brains analyzing, you know, a situation or a character's behavior or, you know, part of the plot. And, you know, uh, for the most part, kids know the difference between right and wrong, but the way they express that varies from brain to brain, right? And I yeah. think that that kind of conversation is really, 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 really important um, to the developing human mind, but also to tie all full back together is like the developing reader. You know, like if you want to become a reader, you have to engage yourself with your content and what, what it is you're reading on that level to some sense. And, you know, and as an adult, it's a lot harder to form book clubs. <laughs> it's a lot harder to, you know, sit down and talk, talk to people about what it is you're reading. So you kind of have to develop those muscles, um, earlier on. So I like that style of writing too. Okay. Um, it's not everybody
1: teachers tend not uh sorry adults tend not to like the books the kids start reading it and can't put it down
0: yeah right well that's what i was gonna ask is like do you do you have kids like this might sound goofy but like do you do like test runs in with your students like to see if a story sticks or not
1: i never do it during class i do it because i don't want to get in trouble but of course yeah right or or i have lunch time clubs where we're sharing and I I think I benefited more from that than any other adult editor. I read the stories out loud, and the moment I saw a kid's eye wander, I crossed out that last line, (laughs) you know? Mm. Yeah, and there's no better way, because a lot of young adult fiction, I swear, they're writing it, they're either writing in a way that they don't understand kids, or that they think kids are, and they don't know unless they're in the classroom. Yes. Is it called the Buford series? Is that what it's called? There
0: is this- uh, I believe so.
1: Yeah, like that was um, some of the most, that was the best books in the world because they're super easy to read. There weren't the deepest things in the world, but they were about kids' lives written for kids, clearly from somebody who was still living um, middle school life. And kids would read those nonstop, even the reluctant readers, because it talked to talk to them. And I hope my books do that. And and I know they do. Well, I should say I know I do that because I did practice runs and, you know, maybe 100 times over. And yeah, anything that didn't work, I crossed out.
0: Do you find your students? Well, so I guess first question is, like, do you tell them that the, these are stories that you're actually writing?
1: Yeah, definitely. So. I every single time, I will share with kids. Hey, look, um, I I struggle with reading. Uh, I, I struggle with writing. I that's true. I've always had, and um, I use my ability to to sometimes say, okay, if if I my mind wanders, how do I refocus on reading? If uh, I'm writing, how do I make it interesting for me? So both mm-hmm. as a reader and a writer, I'm definitely sharing my process. And being real in that way is way more helpful than somebody who doesn't have that problem. So I, I, I think I was meant. I think it, I think um, I've done a good job in that way. But definitely, when I share writing, there's funny. One of my best stories. Um, came from my my kids asked me say how did you get your your ideas for your stories and I'll say I'll just be inspired by something and go with it and see and see what comes out of it and in that moment there was a boy in line who was just doing circles and I thought to myself okay we're going to write a story about uh, I changed it to a girl uh, the girl who loves circles and I said this girl loves Cheerios loves Oreos loves Frisbees (laughs) rectangular pans because they were in circles. She loved pizza. And then she met Lionel. The boy loved lines. He loved zip lining. He he, he loved waiting in <laughs> line, you know, and, and and then they met together and they fall in love. And it's it's really this beautiful story about appreciating each other's differences. All all that started because of this boy who was starting in circles. So I I would tell the kids, you know, start with your passion. I struggled with writing. When I found my passion for an idea, then I didn't struggle with writing for, at all. All I did was want to share it, and that was um, something I tried to teach the, the students.
0: It's you know, it's strange. I, that's something I remember being in college. You know, in my in my education courses. And, you know, I remember all my professors preaching about, you know, you got to keep your your social media secure. You can't share this, you know, your your private life. You can't you can't. Oh, you you like write books and you paint paintings like you're really not supposed to talk to your students about it. Um, And it's strange, like once I started teaching and, you know, with the Internet, like nothing is private anyway. But, you know, eventually they found my books, which I don't write for kids i write for adults but at the same time kids would find it and ask me questions because of course they're curious you know of course and then it it turned into these conversations like well you know how do you write a chapter how do you develop a character how do you make a plot and it it kind of like sparked it sparked their interest seeing that like i was doing this and not every kid you know i know not everyone loves to read and write but some of the struggling readers and writers who you could tell had that spark, but were kind of reluctant because they didn't have that, like uh, they were missing a piece, whether it be confidence or a skill or something they could recognize in themselves, where they they were kind of reluctant to get started. You know, those kinds of kids would ask me these ask me those kinds of questions, and then next thing you know, like they're turning in, you know, these these stories as extra credit just because they kind of wow. fell in love with the process. Wow. So I guess this is my roundabout way of asking, like, do you find this helping your ability to teach reading and writing in class? Like giving, giving them a real world example. Like this is how I do it.
1: Yeah. I could, you, you took it further than me. They, I definitely teach it with finding your passion and what you're interested in doing. Kind of interesting. We talked earlier about, about finding something they were passionate about reading. And then I'll say, find something you're passionate about writing. And Absolutely, I do that. I don't actually share my writing technique. I'll teach them about perseverance, and I'll teach them about getting feedback and mm. um, and, and reading out loud. And I'll show them, share them my process. I'll share the process with me. I actually moved on from being an English teacher to the social emotional learning teacher, running circles and doing restorative justice work. Right. Um, so I don't. I, I wonder what I would do if they would be inspired as an English teacher. But a lot of times they have me come into classrooms that are struggling and say, hey, can you run a circle and um, address some of the bigger issues that are happening in the class? And I always mention my book and they, um, they, you know, it, it gets, gets borrowed a lot afterwards from the classroom library. And um, kids will ask about it. I haven't had the opportunity to teach from it yet. So thank you. Uh, I have to think about that some more. But I definitely always share it as, this is hey um you know in the circles we talk about racism we talk about equity we talk about uh struggles with teachers peers um yeah. all the stuff and the kids are passionate when we set up you know you set the right forum up for them to talk that then becomes a great um tool for them to then write about it and part of the social emotional learnings we do a reflection every day so um to some, to some degree we do that and I, I'm actually inspired to do it more after this conversation.
0: <laughs> Good, I'm glad I could help there.
1: Yeah, um,
0: and, you know, it's it's interesting because um, again, every every kid has their own brain and and it works differently, right? And part of middle school I found is helping kids figure out how their brains work. You know, so some kids will come to me and ask about you know how, I didn't know you right. like what you know how do you develop characters? But then other kids will come to me. And they'll ask, like, I know you write you like to write fiction, but like what about, you know, research writing? Like, how do I use evidence in an essay? Yeah. Um, or or whatever the case is. And granted, I, you know, I'm not saying this is like an everyday occurrence, but I find that being open about my own processes there lends kids uh it opens the door for them to ask those kinds of questions. Whereas if I was a little more, I feel as if I was a little more seclusive about it and like kind of kept that gate closed, they wouldn't be willing to kind of ask those kinds of higher level questions that ultimately are just out of their own curiosity. It's not really for the curriculum, you know, but it does kind of help them think through their own thinking process, if that makes any sense.
1: It does makes a lot of sense. I think for sure, I, I'm, I'm of the fo- philosoph- philosophical background of saying, yeah, show, share about your life, of course, when it's appropriate and make right. sure that you never feel like they need to take care of you or anything like this. But yeah, the more you share your passions and even I, I love to share that I still have questions. And you know, I'll say, yes. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times we've had discussions on you know, taking the bus to school. Uh, the city bus is always a big topic, always a frustration for me. I'm always talking about, well, this person sits on the outside seat, the inside seat's not there. <laughs> this is not right. And how do I approach that? And I love sharing my struggles. Um, that they then connect to me on a level. They, they feel it's something you can do in middle school. I don't think you can do it in elementary school um, or if you'd have to do it more carefully. I, I, we, we should ask elementary school teachers to give feedback on that. But definitely yeah. in middle school, they feel so great when you don't um, say that you know better, but that there's something that you know and then some things you're working out. And it builds a relationship that they then trust you much, much more than when you pretend you know everything.
0: Yes, yes, I say that all the time. It's like, yeah, in I try to adopt that mindset in my classroom of you know, I the only reason I know a little bit more than you is because I was on this planet longer, but (laughs) I don't know everything, I'm still learning. And thank goodness for things like Google who that can help me understand so I don't have to go to the library and check out every single book, you know. Um, how has so this is a little bit of a gear shift, but how has getting and surviving COVID affected all of this, the writing process, the teaching, and how all the two things are interconnected <laughs> and the pandemic? I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Feel free to explore it however you want. But how has that ultimately impacted, you know, your life pre-COVID?
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. Big, big, big stuff there. Okay. Uh, well, one, I, I, the other thing I want to share that I think might be a little interesting is because my three – three of my books are for adolescents, I had to make sure the COVID book, which is written for adults, was family friendly. And it is. So I Hmm. I took out anything that wouldn't be appropriate for any of my students to read. And while it's geared towards adults, um, it is something that if it gets in the hands of a younger reader, they'll find it intriguing. And I wrote the book as an oral history. So it's not just my voice. It's the voice of the doctors, the nurses, the physical therapists, uh, my family, uh, friends, everybody um had a voice in it to tell a narrative about um my experience. So sorry, I actually forgot about my original question. <laughs> the original question. <laughs> well, uh, like I close. mean just
0: how has how has getting and surviving covid affected your your writing process, your teaching process? Uh, right writing, writing the book, I mean eventually it became the book, like you were saying it's not really meant for kids but you were kind of, you know, keeping it kid-friendly in case they did find it. Yeah,
1: so this, what I could tell you when I woke up, um, I definitely needed, life became very different for me. And I noticed that I spent a lot of time for my own joy. Even though I'm a school teacher, I still, my biggest ambition was to be a, a famous acrobatic dancer. And to some degree, I, in a small sliver of the world, I achieved that. But things shifted for me instead of wanting to do things for myself. I really wanted to do things much more for others. That shifted for me. So when I started, when I woke up, I finished the second Laughable Legends volume. Um, And more than that, I also was writing a satire about uh, Trump's presidency and his election that I had also just about finished, but didn't finish, and spent my few hours not in brain fog to finish those two books. The book I didn't want to work on was actually the COVID story. That's because it was so painful to recall some of those details. And I actually hired a ghostwriter to do it. I said, you know what? Let me just tell you some stories, interview all these people, and put it together. It's too painful for me to do. She did it. And in my opinion, it was terrible. And I thought, oh <laughs> boy, I better, <laughs> oh, boy I, better, I better do this myself. Um, and the moment I decided to myself, I stayed up all night. Um, put it, put together a really great first two chapters about, um, getting sick in front of the first week and waking up one day, not able to, uh, sleeping in front of a refrigerator because I was too tired to get to, um, the bed, deciding at the time that if I go to a hospital, it should be NYU. That decision saved my life. Um, the, the flattening of the curve saved my life because if people didn't flatten the curve, I wouldn't have got the ECMO machine that... Uh, help save me. Um, what it was like to uh, wake up and and have a disconnection to your body. I shared all my dreams in the COVID story. Um, all these things came together, and it was a beautiful. In some ways, it was it, be, it was hard because I had to remember everything, but it was also easy to do. I probably put together in just just a few months and. Um, the key for me was to make it entertaining. So I told lots of stories, like you know, it's uh, actually it's a good thing when you wake up after being in the hospital for three months because your Amazon bill is zero. It's just great until, of course, <laughs> until you <laughs> until you look at your hospital bill, you know. Or I make right. a like um, you know something like uh, you know waking up from a coma. Yeah, it's it's not so it's, it's not so great, but. You know when when somebody starts complaining about your life you say well i was in a coma for 30 days you can trump them at any moment and um and it's really a uh i, I try it as best my can best i can to keep it lighthearted. you know i am a middle school teacher of 30 some, of 30 years so i'm always gonna write something fast-paced it's a very fast-paced book easy read um you can read it usually in a few hours in one sitting but it's going to be deep it starts off more informative and then gets philosophical about things we talked about earlier that life is about um, working your process. I actually learned the lesson because in the dream, I knew that if I could just reach the diamond at the bottom of the world and bring it to the top of the world, I'd finally get everything I've always wanted. And you know, whether it was like the, the winning this competition, whatever it was, it was a diamond that I brought it to the top of the world. And the moment I achieved that, the spirit split me in half with the sword uh, revealed to me five multi universes that exist at the same moment. And in this for to this day, after that experience, I no longer have that ambition to find satisfaction through this type of gain. The only type of satisfaction I have is loving others, loving myself. Um and not in that way of achievement that through an external validation, but through inner validation. Mm-hmm. Um it's a long <laughs> I think I rambled on a little bit there. But no, no it's good. The writing process, to sum that up, yeah, the writing process was actually a beautiful experience for COVID's uh, COVID story because I was just telling the stories of what happened and tried to do it in an entertaining way. And the feedback I've gotten so far has been been that that it's a really great read. The only thing people complain about is they want more, <laughs> more. So <laughs> I have to follow up with blog posts. You know, I keep getting messages, uh, you need more. So yeah, do that with more. Well, blog it's posts.
0: tough too because like it, especially if it's if it was painful for you to experience and to, to revisit all those things and then write about it. And then you have people who are reading it, enjoying it and saying, we want more. It's like, all right, right well, do I want to put myself in that situation again? You know,
1: It's definitely not. Yeah. It, it's not easy. Like just even, you go back and trying to remember the pain, you know, it's funny before, talking about karma earlier, you know, I had my mother, who was very mentally ill. She would call me and say, come over, I can't find my glasses. I'd come over, her glasses were underneath the bed. And I used to think, my, she's really struggling with her mind. She's struggling with uh, getting people to pay attention to her. And to, to be self-critical, I was, I was critical of her. After I woke up, I would have done anything for a nurse to come in the room, anybody. The room. I was so lonely, uh, isolated in, in, in the room because of COVID. Um, you couldn't have visitors. I understood my mother at a whole nother level. And when I had to write about that, boy, that pain was, uh, I, I, you know, sometimes I think about the hospital food was good and, you know, I was treated quite kindly. I thought that wasn't so bad. But yeah, but recalling some of the pain, that was not fun. And that, and it's still to this moment, is even as I remember this moment, it's rough. And to some degree, I wonder if the book just becomes also a strong pro vaccine message because. know people think oh i'm young i was 48 i was in relatively decent shape uh good heart rate and this this disease decimated me my brother is in the same body shape as mine was fine after one week and it was in my community i'm a well-known acrobatic dancer people thought wow dave paris went down this could happen to anybody and um yeah that's uh it was a call to action for a lot of people to take it more seriously and hopefully it does does so now
0: yeah well, I mean, the other thing too is, I mean, that that whole, the story alone of how it became a book, combined with the fact that you have the book, plus hearing this, you know, all of that kind of aligns with what you were saying before of, you know, realizing that the true purpose is to kind of service others and use those things as tools to kind of help spread the light or spread the love amongst those who are willing to kind of be part of your community. That's um, why I love and, the
1: book, for sure. Yeah, I want, yeah. People, I want people to really get a sense of what it's like if you're a patient, if you don't know somebody. And I know lots of people who don't know anybody who who suffered from COVID, and the book became a, a light to them. And if there, I know people who are caretakers, I know lots of people in their family who died and appreciated what I was sharing. And if I may give a shout out, the nurses who read this book loved it. All the nurses who I uh, showed the book and nurses in my life I shared with, I said, thank you for the amazing work you did. I'm very very big on them it's very strongly for uh mental health i I got amazing psychotherapeutic help in the hospital and afterwards and if give a shout out to people who are helping others whether it's somebody with COVID or an elderly parent or somebody's disabled in some way um, i never knew how important these people were in people's lives and the book does give a shout out to all those people because i got all that care from all those people
0: And it, I mean, it reached, it sounds like it reached you on such a deeper level too of more so than just the physical pain, but like that mental, I mean, the story of, of, you, you know, you and your mom there, that's, that to me speaks on so many deeper levels than just, oh, this is this guy, you know, he got COVID and survived. Like, no, it's so much deeper than that. I mean, he, you know, you, you learn something about your mom who probably otherwise would never admit to something. I mean, I don't know your mom, so I don't want to speak for it, but
1: that's correct. You got it. W-
0: would never admit to something like that. But then through your own experience, you kind of like had this, you know, the universe aligned and kind of like, here's this lesson you need in your life right now. You know, yeah. it was one of those things. It's like all of those, all of those pieces coming together form the, the deeper message behind the book. Um, and it sounds like you kind of, you aim to do the same thing with all of your writing you kind of have like the surface level story but then like the you know the main deep message behind it and like what it's actually trying to teach or or uh spark conversation about and in all honesty i, I think the world needs this right now especially in america
1: <laughs> yeah i i, I it's, it's something i don't get up on a soapbox and preach but i definitely passed down um quite a this this experience for me was first, a a lesson in gratitude and lesson in the amazing help that people give. But it was a spiritual lesson for sure. And I now understand significance. I understand process, and I try to share that in the book without being
0: preachy. and right. uh, yeah, yeah, which is difficult to do. <laughs> you know, a lot, a lot topics like that tend to it's it's hard to reach people on that level without sounding that way. um, but I think, not that it's impossible it's just you know with social media being what social media is it's 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 difficult and i i'm i come from the belief of um w- you know and it, this is probably just my brain but writing things to truly understand them like it forces you to kind of see things in a in a perspective that like just living your day-to-day life you don't you don't see it on that level you know um whether it's pain passion joy whatever it is you're trying to experiment and truly understand you know writing it helps you kind of see it in that light
1: i definitely i could say it was painful writing the story but it also revealed more truths for me and like you said yeah it, it it sharpens my experience for what it what it meant to me to go through the through this you know it's funny i had a bunch of people tell me and this is true for people who are have near-death experiences uh they often don't want to come back and you need a reason to come back and my experience yeah. um was was that i know that one of my dreams before i woke up is i was in a library with the spirit and there's an old old spirit big grumpy looking at um these old library books and i told him no i want to return to the world He looked at me funny why do you want to go to that world and i i knew i had a mission and When I woke up, it's not a little funny. One of my missions was, you know, actually not writing. But one of the first things I realized is I just want to be an acrobatic dancer. This is this is why I was meant to come back. And um, it was in the midst of a series of dreams I had. The second night I woke up as a cyborg and um, tried to crawl my way out of bed, not knowing I couldn't walk because I had to get out of the airplane I was in and the uh, nurse, knew at that point I was definitely hallucinating on some crazy, <laughs> craziness and I tell all these funny stories but in, 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 the, in the end it was the biggest thing is I it, there was a drive there was a drive that kept me alive there's a drive that um, brought me from wanting to be alive and I remember the moment that um, very very early in my dreams I knew I was going to die the Buddha I met this uh, Japanese Buddha in the theater the theater I think represents life and um, the the Buddha told me I was going to die, and um, there was nothing he could do to help me. And I pleaded with him for hours. And I was like, I refused to, to go. And he eventually said, I'll give you a small sliver of a chance, but you're going to have to fight harder than you ever did in your life. And um, I remember that that took it took a month while I was in a coma, but it felt even longer. Um, And that drive that I have now, it's still there. It's whether it's to write, it's to get the most out of life, to share the most. And I hope my book does that. And I hope to write 20 more (laughs) before I go.
0: (laughs) So that leads me to my next question. What do you got going on now? What's your do you have next steps that you're willing to disclose? I do have a I know you mentioned you were trying to do something with a blog. I mean, what do you what do you got in the foresight here?
1: I got like six or seven projects. So how much time do you have?
0: Um, so, <laughs> however much you want. <laughs>
1: cool. Yeah, uh, definitely. I want to do AGT next year. America's got talent again. Um, that's a physical goal of mine. Uh, I would love to, I'm actually getting my degree in teaching dance. And one of the best things I did earlier, I think was telling you t- teaching acrobatics all the dance. I wasn't a licensed, t- licensed teacher to do it. I want to get my license so I can bring that back and the physicality back in learning. Um, that to me would be very exciting and bring um, movement in, uh, in the social emotional learning that I do. Um, I did finish my second volume of Laugh of the Legends. My illustrator hasn't illustrated it yet. He's too, he's too busy with these kids during the pandemic at home. So I'm excited for that to come out and work on the next one. Uh, I have a debate about whether to do a third book because I did the satire about Trump's election, um, about Trump's presidency. I wonder whether I should do another one about the um, riot on January 16th and Mm. Middle school election fraud. I'm, I'm on, uh, I have a debate about that. Any, any readers who are familiar with my work, please uh, let me know what you think about that. But some of the more uh, the bigger projects I'm working on, the biggest one I'm working on is a life goals curriculum for kids called Life Goals in the Classroom. And I've been working on that for a while, starting four years ago, actually. Uh, with oh, wow. Me. Yeah. Um, and having kids pursue, like we talked about, pursuing their reading, pursuing their own goals in life, tracking them, using each other as resources, um, writing a book about that, writing, creating a digital platform for that, and working on that with my um, principal, and I want to make that available as soon as possible. And that probably is going to take another five or six months, but ideally, it'll be done um, sooner than that. I could go on, <laughs> but <laughs> these are some of these are some of my bigger, bigger goals. And of course, the biggest goal—I'm so sorry—I should have mentioned this first—to is to be nicer to my mother. My God, I should have figured that out by now. <laughs>
0: yes please everyone be nice to their mothers brought you into this what my mom used to say i brought you into this world i could take you out <laughs> i mean
1: you know it's funny people you know i know a lot of people have experience with uh elderly parents who are struggling mentally and some parents age well and some don't my mother is struggling with um with loneliness quite a bit and it can be hard when somebody starts becoming better as she has and i i would do things reluctantly before and now it's exactly what you said i it's still hard but i do it with this with a memory every single time i talk to her and it gets difficult i remember all the things she did for me um and i get out of the moment of of where she's struggling just give back based on what she gave me
0: yeah and that does i mean that once you kind of catch yourself in that moment of like i'm doing this for someone that's not me (laughs) you know i'm doing this for another person that that kind of sparks that sense of gratitude. And that's almost like the, that's like the positive reward in your brain. You know, that's like the signal saying like, Hey, I know this stinks and it's not what you want to do, but it's for a good reason and it will come back around. Yeah. So I think that's pretty important. Um, regardless of whether or not it's your one, your mother, of course, you know, you want it to yeah, be your mom, anybody. of course, but for everyone.
1: Yes. Absolutely. Um,
0: I did want to, I wanted to pick your brain a little about that, the life goals curriculum we were talking about. I think that's, that is phenomenal and much, much needed. Um, can you dive a little deeper on that? I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want you to like give away <laughs> your entire curriculum there, but like what kind of approach are you taking for that? Is that kind of like a supplementary thing or is that meant to be like an in in the classroom it's like curriculum?
1: To, yeah, it's meant to be in the classroom. What I found, I started with New Year's resolutions, like I'm sure you've done New Year's resolutions, right? Before. Mm-hmm. Up yep. your kids. How many days does it last? Not even weeks or months, usually two or three days, right? So I, my curriculum came and was inspired by that doing um, multiple, multiple years doing New Year's resolutions and saying, you know what, as a social emotional learning teacher, I want to do it differently. So that's why I wrote the first book, so I could model not giving up, and I could model my own struggle. And I did model my own struggle. It took me, uh, I think, three months to write, maybe it was a month, I forget, maybe it was a month to write the first three stories. And I would update the kids every time. And it it occurred to me that one of the ways we get things done in the world, uh, well, if another thing, you need a life, (laughs) sorry, I, I just jumped to another thought. I'm gonna go to another thought, and then if you can bring me back here, my other thought is: is we need. I, I became a life coach. I had a life coach. The life coach was crucial in in really getting me to step up my dance and getting my goals, get what I wanted. And I thought to myself, the biggest thing with with um, getting getting coaching. It's not so much the advice they give. All you just need is somebody to keep you accountable. You know, they have all these programs mm. on Accountability Buddies, and they say you're 50% more likely to get something done if you write it down. And I thought to myself, okay, there's something to be had about a community um, who holds us accountable. And it's a little tricky because some of the life coaches out there are a little negative and might try to motivate you in a way that's not positive. of middle school, right. we already have enough negativity. So the curriculum is all positive-based and uplifts kids through things they want to do. And um, yeah, I think I'm going back to your question. So a lot of it's accountability, and a lot of it is um, using the resources of a, of, a, of a class. My school is special. We do uh, social emotional learning is, um, for some classes, it's, it's once a week. For some, it's five times a week. Uh, they're very fortunate, in my opinion, to to be able to have this type of um experience and what better way to build community is to experientially go after goals together so yeah that's the it's based on four years of me running this curriculum and um realizing that um not only did i learn a lot about how to teach it but then also if you have a digital platform you know kids are going to be on social media why not be able to monitor what they do on social media why not be able to help Uh, keeping the messages positive. Of course, they're going to do whatever they want on their own, but if you um, have some of the things be public and and teach some of the positive feedback that the program does, then um, I think you're going to have not only kids learn from their goals, but you learn how to kids, how to support each other.
0: Yeah. That community building piece. That's, that's huge. Um, My, I know, like, I don't, I don't get a chance in my curriculum to teach specifically teach social emotional learning, but it is part of like my, you know, my day to day lesson planning. I try to piece it in where I can, which I wish I had more time, but you know you know how schools work, you know, there's certain things, that, gonna, certain you know, benchmarks you gotta hit.
1: For sure, like that for me, when we hit nonfiction uh, reading unit, that's when I did this kind of work. And mm. it was actually from doing community building during nonfiction um, unit that my principal said, you know what, why don't you do this full time? And uh, I give her a lot of credit for giving me that opportunity. And I, I think I would love, if I do it well, I would love it to be compatible for an English classroom or even a social studies classroom, um, definitely a health health education classroom, but yeah. to make it um, applicable for that reach the standards for, for literacy and still um, help kids focus on what they want to focus on.
0: Yeah. And I think that's something, uh, you know, this day and age, with the realm of digital sphere, I think kids need something, some sort of outlet like that, where it's, um, where it's guided. Uh, there's, there's some sort of structure behind that specific life skill. I mean, you know, that's, it's something I feel like with the digital realm, um, kids don't have access to the direct dots. They kind of have to like piece together their own dots, which is, you know, that's tough for an adult, let alone a, 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 an adolescent trying to figure that out on their own. So that's what, kind of why I wanted to pick your brain about it, seeing where. Yeah, for
1: sure. I mean, I would, if you're up for it, um, I probably need a few more months to flesh out. I've done the program a bunch, but it, it's going to take a little bit of fine tuning, um, but I should be able to present you the, the finished product pretty soon.
0: <laughs> so then we'll, uh, I guess that sounds like we'll have to do a round two on the podcast. Oh, then once We get a hand little hand result. Down for that. I would love it. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, cool. Um, David, it's been a blast having you on the podcast. Do you want to, uh, you want to shift gears and do these uh, rapid fire questions? Oh yeah, sure. I'd love to. So I call, I say this all the time. I, <laughs> I call them rapid fire questions. They don't have to be rapid. I mean, you can answer them rapidly if you want, but don't feel any pressure there. I'm trying to, I'm harnessing my inner Tim Ferriss here, trying to, I'm trying to get that going. <laughs> yes. All right. So, uh, first question, what are you currently reading and would you recommend it to our listeners today?
1: <laughs> I'm current, <laughs> I'm currently reading Tony Robbins, uh, book on, um, unleashing the power. And I am a it's huge a fan, right? He is, he, he helped me a lot as I was struggling, uh, post uh post-COVID and finding my own passion. So I recommend everything he does, everything he says. Um and I'm also reading the philosophy book uh for kids. And I love, I love just yeah i recommend both of these books the philosophy book i love because i love bringing philosophical questions to middle school students you know it's not so much in the beginning of the year but middle of the year for the social emotional learning they start coming in saying hey you know you ever have lucid dreaming or stuff like this and who is the end and they they are again middle school is the best because they're open for conversation they're sophisticated enough to have it and i love reading stuff preparing cool lessons for them
0: Mm -hmm. And they're still innocent. I mean, there's, there's like a touch of, you know, non-innocence there from the internet, but for the most part, they're like still pure. (laughs) Yeah. I mean,
1: less so so in eighth grade than sixth grade, but definitely uh, more pure than uh, older ages.
0: Oh, for sure. You know, by the time high school and college rolls around, it's a different story. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right, cool. Um, And yes, I do second the Tony Robbins stuff. I know he gets a lot of, he has that stigma. uh, People kind of, you know, throw him into the, the self-help category, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, there's, there's a good way to do the self-help thing and there's a bad way to do it. And Tony Robbins is definitely the good way.
1: He gets, he gets a uh, bad rap because of all the stuff he did in with the infomercials back in the nineties. And yeah. I, had, I had the same opinion of him. I watched that Netflix special. I'm not your guru. And that changed my uh, opinion. Yeah, me wasn't, too. Wasn't that amazing? I was so good. Anybody who's not seen it, you gotta see that. And I thought I thought, oh my god, I, I totally misjudged this guy. And I've been a big fan ever
0: since. It's funny the you know, the internet changed little things like that, you know, just the, the way that people promote their work and share their work. I mean, it, it totally shifted stigmas around not just Tony Robbins, but like many people who have been around pre internet, post internet, like it kind of shifted their their light in the universe which is sometimes bad but for the most part good (laughs) right
1: it can also be can also be a problem
0: right all right cool um so second question what is your favorite meal to prepare cook eat uh to share with friends family or by yourself but do you have a favorite dish
1: yeah i'm gonna say cold noodles with sesame sauce it's what got me Mm. through a co-op in college it was the i think it was the only thing i did did make um i lived in a co-op with a bunch of hippies who were, you know, uh, loved doing, eating raw food. And some of our, I remember one meal we had was like a raw garlic sandwich and like the whole college Mm. smelled after we had that. (laughs) (laughs) It was really bad. Like we were a really interesting community, but we had a thing that we you had to, one of the rules is you had to have dinner together and um, on your night of cooking, um, you know, it's, it's a responsibility if you, if you, if you did a poor job, then you can definitely think that it's going to follow through the rest of the week. So I did have one dish, cold sesame sauce, super easy to make, had the right recipe and, uh, everybody was happy with me. So that's, that's my favorite to this day. If You want the recipe, nice. just let me know info at davidparisbooks.com or I'll put it on a blog if, uh, if I ever get to that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that too because it kind of brings it full circle. That uh, that community uh, accountability yes. piece you were kind of talking about, definitely. <laughs> definitely, absolutely. So that ties it together. All right, uh, and then the third final question. It doesn't. Don't feel like you have to go profound. You're more than welcome to if you want to, though. Um, what's one life lesson that you'd like to pass on to the listeners today? Like the one thing you want them to take away from our conversation.
1: One thing. Can I say one other thing? <laughs>
0: yes, you can make it too. Go for it.
1: I realized that when you said um, what are you reading? I listen to audiobooks all the time.
0: Oh, that's fine. I've had people I've had people name like documentaries before. I read the word reading there is taken lightly. It's more in the sense of like betterment. What are you what are you kind of doing to absorb something that's not just like mindless YouTube, you know?
1: And when you said that, my brain went into this. Every morning, I'm listening to this book, the best book on Buddhism I've ever read, called "Stepping Out of Self Deception." And if you ever had a spiritual, religious streak in you, um, I've been studying. I've been in and out of look. I was a religion major in college, and and always fascinated by spiritual books. This is by far the best book I've ever read. I have no idea why it's not more popular. Even it only has four stars on Amazon. It talks about the self, and this is spiritual for me because coming out of um, this experience of only seeing myself as important and having an illusion of my, ah, there's so much to say here. What's the one big lesson? Okay, self-deception, stepping out of self-deception. And for me, when I was working, I've been spending a lot of time with my dance partner's son, who's 19 months old. I've met him now at 11 months. And seeing how he developed the sense of self and the more that he identifies with creating and naming things around him, the more he identifies with the body. But he wasn't born that way. He was born in an interconnected way. And I can notice that our mind gets stronger and stronger and identifies with the self-circular logic of who we are. We lose the sense of interconnection. And my near-death experience, Mm. we don't have to have that near-death to get there. We are far more interconnected than we realize. It's just our minds are such that we constantly are focusing on our self-existence. Not everybody, of course, but definitely me. And as we, you get, a. I had a jolt in life that shocked me out of that self. Um, and the way to do that without, you know, maybe dying is to just look out for the ways that we have significance that we, you know, this morning I was reading about um, how when you externalize blame onto somebody else, you immediately dismiss buddha's first teaching that all life is suffering because you try to externalize to somebody else seeking um the blame to somebody else so you don't suffer but Mm -hmm. you accept the suffering as something and attach a curiosity to a situation instead of a blame so much more is possible for seeing the world and this author does an amazing i don't do that in my book I just talk about it <laughs> 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 to be honest. This guy is way better than me at, at getting his level. So that's the book I would recommend. And the life lesson is, yeah, that we're, we're way more significant than we realize and to tune into the joys of every single pleasure. As I'm with this young, beautiful boy who just loves to walk and he loves to uh, find a cushion to jump on. It reaffirms the infinity of the now instead of the fear of the future. And tapping into that is is a timeless, beautiful way to live life that I've been blessed to to now in in what's integrate. Um not because I should, but because it's a better way to live. And uh, that would be a lesson I would want to pass on.
0: Isn't that also a Tony Robbins book, Power of Now? Am I mixing that up?
1: Uh that's is that Robbins
0: uh, or is that Eckhart?
1: That's Eckhart.
0: That's and- Eckhart. Well, it aligns. I mean, because that's I, I full heartedly agree with that. The the power of the self centering presence again is it's something that children have that somewhere along the lines gets beaten out of us by the time we're an adult, and like you kind of have to find your way back to it. It's true. Did you read the book?
1: I, I I keep trying to read the book, and it's too it's too boring to me. The power. Um,
0: it's I've listened to the audio book. I have not actually physically read it. I, it is on my list, though. That's one of those <laughs> books sitting on my shelf. Like, I'm going to read this when the universe tells me to. I you know? keep trying, and it's like,
1: man. But I'm telling you, this other book, Self, uh, Stepping Out of Self-Deception, that does the – did you ever take landmark uh, form training? Yes. Okay, so you know how, like, in that training, they really teach you your, your, your thoughts are either reflections of trying to control the future or a story about the past. And mm-hmm. by Sunday, you get present in a way that most people have never felt before. I've never felt before. Um, did you, do you remember that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, like that for me, when I had that realization that these thoughts of the mind are are something that's not truly present. They're trying to fill something in the past or uh, trying to figure out based on the pa- based on the past, what the future will be like, and then you create that future. You're not in the moment. All that stuff has led me to a, an appreciation of the now. Being 49 now and also struggling with being on the other side of a performing career, um, it can be a little tough, or I shouldn't say it is tough um, to yeah. see what's possible in life. What emerged from that was the appreciation of the now and acceptance of the now. And with tragedy, with tragedy comes a real ability to throw out. What should be or shouldn't be, the should or shouldn't in life of what we think should be are absolutely a part of not what's now. And as you identify the thoughts that are related to what should or shouldn't be or protection or any of those things, as they identify, you let them dissipate into appreciating what you do have and what is present in the moment. And there's a lot, lot more love when you can get rid of that nonsense.
0: Mm hmm. Uh, that. That essence, that very essence is one of the basis of at least my meditation practice. I try to, uh, one of my, my, my mentor, my <laughs> meditation mentor always told me, like, thought, thoughts are like the clouds, they come and they go, or the waves, you know, because I live over here by the, the beach. They come and they go. Some are big, some are large, some are small, some are tiny, some are so small you don't even feel them. But once you recognize that they're just waves and they do come and go that really centers you in that in that present moment um, and you're able to kind of recognize that that all there is is love and that's that's what is at the very heart of the presence um, and it's really beautiful to kind of think about that and see how you know along your one's course of of personal development and just you know growing and aging and experiencing life you know everyone's going to have their own form of of uh, suffering and, and joy But recognizing that all of those moments are ultimately a space of the now at one point in your life, it kind of sets you free. It kind of points you in a direction of saying like, or thinking to yourself that like you can really kind of see things from a different angle if you train yourself to do so. And, you know, that's by no means is that easy, but it's possible.
1: No doubt. Definitely.
0: So. All right. Um, David, it's been a blast. We're definitely going to have man. to do a, uh, we're going to do it again, right? Yeah. As soon as you get that curriculum together, we're, we're going to have to do a round two there because I will definitely see, I would love to see how the results kind of turn around, how the kids accept it, reject it, whatever, however yeah. they kind of, uh, experience it. Um, for the listeners, where can they find you online? Where can they find your book? Yeah. Reach out to you if they have questions, that kind of thing.
1: David Paris Um, and you can the book is for sale on amazon it's called a COVID story the other books are also there laughable legends middle school election and middle school president and soon laughable legends volume two if my illustrator (laughs) (laughs) illustrating and you can catch me on on youtube there are these great videos Uh, for those um people who love the adolescent age or you have adolescence check out david paris books or laughable legends on uh, YouTube and you'll see some really funny, you'll see the stories are five minutes and uh, a great watch and, and kids love them. I, I think you'll enjoy it. Too.
0: I do recommend the YouTube channel. Uh, the, the, uh, the videos are quite, quite hilarious as a teacher. I appreciate them very much.
1: Oh, Thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much. For sure.
0: All right. Um, we will connect again soon. Okay.
1: Glenn, thank you so much.
0: For sure. Have a great rest of your night. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that's it, friends. Thanks for tuning in. I hope to swing through again. If you'd like to reach out, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at medium.com betterism. Be better at whatever it is you're building. And remember, friends, stay learning.